So if you haven't already, I invite you to open up your Bible to Hebrews 11. We're looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. I can still remember on this last day of the regular baseball season where they're still, we're still on pins and needles about the outcome for certain teams. I can remember the first time I stepped into the new Yankee Stadium down in the Bronx. Sorry, Mets fans. We, we walked into the majestic Great Hall, as it's called, in the stadium, and were surrounded by these impressive larger-than-life banners hung around of various Yankee le- legends, past and present. Derek Jeter, Reggie Jackson, Mickey Mantle. Then, later, as we settle into our seats, the giant screen plays a video highlight montage of impressive recent Yankee moments, home runs, amazing plays in the field, strikeouts of opposing batters, all from the the current season. And all of this is designed to remind us of how great and impressive and amazing the Yankees are. The tradition, the the legacy of past greatness and the inspiring greatness of the, the present Yankees. And because as a young boy, I dreamed of someday playing for the Yankees, a dream that still hasn't come true, (laughs) I've sometimes wondered what it would be like to be a minor leaguer just getting called up for the first time to the big leagues and stepping into Yankee Stadium and taking all of that in. Would it inspire me to greatness? saying, you're part of an amazing tradition. Many have gone before you. Come, join them, and be part of their greatness. Well, that's what today's chapter in Hebrews is designed to do for us. As we begin to read it, we're stepping into a hall of heroes. We're being reminded of the lives that they lived and the testimony of their lives. And we're supposed to be encouraged and strengthened and inspired to follow in their footsteps and to let our lives be more like their lives. We ended the last chapter of Hebrews a couple weeks ago, uh, chapter 10, with these words. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is a word of identity. It's a reminder of who we are. We are not those who shrink back, those who fall away from our salvation, but rather we are those who have faith, who press on, who persevere, and are saved. And given that that's who we are, we are those who have faith, the author of Hebrews now leads us into this hall of heroes, this hall of faith to remind us of those who have gone before us, who have showed us what it looks like to be people of faith. And so the purpose of chapter 11 is to exhort us and to encourage us to give us fresh resolve to press on as people of faith by giving us examples from our past. Because if we are followers of Jesus Christ, these people we read about in chapter 11, they are our people. They are our family. 
They are part of, of the same community to which we now also belong. We're not walking into this great hall of heroes, as it were, as fans of the game, as watchers of the game. No, we're players, all of us. Stepping out onto the field as part of the same team that these heroes of faith were part of who went before us. We are now challenged, like them, to be people of faith. Remember, Hebrews was, was first written to people undergoing trials, undergoing persecution for their faith in Jesus. Life was getting really hard, very scary for them, and they were tempted to give up, to renounce Jesus Christ, and to go back to the synagogue where life would be more comfortable for them. And Hebrews was written to say, no, don't leave Jesus. Jesus is everything. Renew your faith in him. To give up on Jesus is to give up everything. And in the end, it's to be destroyed. Hang in there. Persevere. Be people of faith. It's worth it, even if it gets hard. So let me ask you, have you ever been very discouraged in your faith? Have you ever been tempted to give up? And what has kept you going? Was it other people of faith who their lives, their faith, their example encouraged you to keep going like some of the stories we heard this morning? Or was it so-called people of faith who actually discouraged you and made you want to quit? I know I've experienced it both ways. <laughs> Probably many of you have too. In my experience of, of being part of churches and around Christians, I've, I've been around Christians who never seem to have anything to say unless it's to complain or offer a criticism. I've known people in church who, who have acted like the picture of saintliness while they were at church, and they were quick to chide others who didn't live up to their high standard. But I happen to know that the police were at their house again the night before because they lost their temper and beat their wife. I've known people who, who seem to care more about the pattern of, on the church tablecloths than about the spiritual growth of its members. You can find all these kinds of people in churches just like you can find them anywhere else. And they can sure discourage your faith. And make you wonder if you even still want to be a Christian. But then again, I've also experienced people in church who have gone through hard, hard things. And through those trials, they have just come to express glowingly that they've gotten to know God better and how wonderful God is despite it all. And I've known people who will drop anything to help someone in need. And I've known people who, who, have, who have made great personal sacrifices for the sake of, of fostering God's work and ministry or for the sake of maintaining integrity at work or for the sake of being faithful in love to a family member who was in great need. These are people of faith. And you can also find people like this in just about any church. And you look at these people and you have this sense that this Jesus thing is real when you look at their lives. And, and I want to be more like them and I want to know God like they know God. 
And we're trying to grow people like that around here in this church, right? <laughs> That's what we're about as a church. And there are people like that in this church. We want to continue becoming and growing to be people of faith. And it's people like that in that second group of people who have encouraged me when I felt like quitting. And some of you have done that for me. And just back in chapter 10 of, of Hebrews, verses 24 and 25, Hebrews encouraged us to be this kind of people for one another. It, it says, going back to chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Meeting together for coffee in various smaller groups here on Sunday morning. And encouraging one another in our faith. Why? So we persevere in our faith. So our faith grows strong and so that it stays strong and so that our lives reflect that faith. Well, to help us and to encourage us and to inspire us, now as we turn to chapter 11, Hebrews invites us into this great hall of the heroes of faith to remember their exploits of faith. The exploits of those who went before us. And the author of Hebrews is going to begin right at the beginning of the biblical story with God creating the world. But before that, we're given a definition of faith. Not a complete definition, not a technical definition, because the purpose of this chapter isn't to teach us theology. It's not to satisfy our intellectual curiosity about what faith is. No, it's to encourage us, to exhort us to be a certain kind of people and to live a certain kind of life, to be people of faith. So this definition of faith is just sketched briefly in passing in verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, if you check several Bible translations, you'll discover that there's some question among Bible scholars about whether confidence and assurance are the right words uh, to define faith, uh, the right translations of that, those parts of the, these verses. But the part that is clear in all the translations is the hoped-for part and the not-seen part. In other words, the key in this verse, in this definition, is that for people who have faith and for all the people we're going to meet in the hall of faith, there was something of the future that they were hoping for, something they couldn't see yet. And that they had the faith to grab hold of ahead of time and bank their lives on that thing that they hoped for and couldn't see. And that's what made them who they are that's what inspired their actions and their exploits that we're going to read about in this chapter. It's what they hoped for, what they couldn't see, that they banked their lives upon. Well, let's now actually meet the, the heroes and, and see how they lived out their lives. In this passage this morning, we're just going to look at the first four. We're going to take several weeks on chapter 11. 
Interestingly, the first thing we come to is actually us. <laughs> because the Bible starts with creation, with God creating the universe, and that's directly applicable to all of us since we live in the universe. Do we believe that God created the universe? Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now today, when we think of the universe, we look to science for explanations. But all science can tell us about is how the universe came into being. It can't tell us why. It can describe some of the mechanisms, but it can't say what or who caused the mechanisms to begin working. Or if there's a person or a purpose behind it all. Nobody can see that. Nobody can observe what or who caused it to begin. But by faith, we believe God did it. God began it. It was God's purpose and God's word that brought everything into being. And if a being so great and so wise and so powerful that that being could create the universe by speaking the word, if a being like that exists and created us, then that's absolutely a game changer. It means we are not masters of the universe. We are not even masters of our own lives or our own destinies. We're contingent. We belong to and we depend on another who made us. And if life in this universe is going to go well for us, we'd better get to know that someone who created it all and who created us. And so everyone else described in this hall of faith, the, the lives that they lived and the choices they made, it all flows and it follows from this first basic belief that there is a God who created the universe and who created us. Okay, second example in the hall of faith. The first person from of old who we actually meet, and that's Abel, verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? They're these, great, someone remembers it. I remember it too. There, there were these two brothers. They were sons of Adam and Eve. And both of them brought an offering to God. Now, what's an offering? It's an act of worship. It's an act of homage, homage to someone greater than you. It's a gift and it's a statement to honor God and to say, God, our creator is great. Or it's, that's what it's supposed to be. But when Cain brought his offering, we read in, in the early, in that story, in the early chapters of Genesis, he brought some vegetables that he grew. Just some, nothing special, the way it's described. Abel, by contrast, brought the best. He brought fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. That was considered the best in that culture, especially for an offering. Abel's offering said, God, you are the best. 
You deserve the best. You are worthy of the best because you are awesome. Meanwhile, Cain's offering said, God, you're okay. You're not bad. I'll throw you a bone now and then. Well, how did God respond? God was pleased with Abel's offering, not so much with Cain's. We don't know how God communicated God's evaluation of these two brothers' offerings, but somehow God favored Abel's offering over Cain's. And the author of Hebrews says, Abel's demonstrates faith. Abel believed God was awesome, that God was worthy of his best, and so he gave God his best. And that takes faith. That offering is evidence of something you can't see. Abel's vision and understanding of who God is and how great God is resulted in his actions in offering that offering. You see, you, we, we, we live out what we believe every day. We can't help it. Every choice, every action we make is the outflow of what we believe to be true. Do we believe it's going to rain today? Do we have faith in the forecast? Then we'll probably bring our umbrella along with us. Do we believe the news report that the lettuce we just bought might be infected with salmonella? Well, if we do, we'll probably throw it away, even though we spent our hard-earned cash on it. Do we believe that masks are effective for slowing the spread of COVID? If we do, that also will affect our behavior, as it will if we don't. Our beliefs affect our behavior. We act out of our beliefs all the time. Not what we say we believe, but what we really believe. And Cain and Abel were just acting out their beliefs about God when they each brought to God each a very different offering. So, and, and I didn't know Barbara was going to talk about this earlier, but so this is coincidental or maybe the Holy Spirit or just the passage we're looking at this morning. But when it comes to offering some of your possessions to God, what do your offerings say about what you believe about God? Do you give God your best or do you reserve your best for yourself? I, I think that's what most people do, that, that second one. But what Abel's offering still speaks to us by his example is this. If we reserve our best for ourselves, then what we really think is that we are greater and we are more worthy than God is. We deserve the best. God's small, God's second best compared to us. All God deserves is our leftovers. We never say that, right? <laughs> but just like Cain's offering, so our offerings are, are evidence of, of what our true beliefs about God are and what sort of faith we actually have or don't have in God. And I suspect if we were to look at everyone's financial decisions, what we discover is that some of us actually have very little faith in God at all. That mostly who we're worshiping, mostly who we think is worthy, is ourselves. The good news is that we can change that. 
We can put our faith in God and realize how awesome God is and let our life choices and our financial choices reflect that. Until we do, Abel will continue to speak to us. All right, next example in the Hall of Faith, Enoch, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Here, Hebrews is referring to an obscure but intriguing little cameo tucked into the middle of a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. We're simply told there that Enoch walked faithfully with God, or depending on your translation, Enoch pleased God, and then God took him away, and he didn't experience death. What a contrast between Enoch and Abel, these first two heroes of faith. Abel, if, if you know the rest of the story, he died for his faith. He was killed by his jealous brother Cain as that story unfolds. Meanwhile, while Abel was killed for his faith, Enoch escaped death completely. He was whisked up in some way to God in heaven. And we're going to find this as we continue that faith doesn't always look the same way. And it doesn't always turn out the same way. Sometimes, because of their faith, people in the hall of faith get a miraculous deliverance. They get a blessing. They get a victory. And other times, because of, of their faith, the legends in the hall of faith endure terrible suffering and persecution. And God doesn't rescue them, and yet they persevere through it faithfully to the end. Well, Enoch, lucky, lucky guy, gets the former treatment, <laughs> former situation. His faith leads him to walk faithfully with God all of his days, and God is pleased with him so much that God takes him to himself. Then we have this comment on this in verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to God must believe that God exists and that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Anyone who comes to God, this phrase comes to God is the same phrase we saw a few verses back in chapter 10, 22, when we looked at that passage where it says, let us draw near to God. It's the same phrase in Greek translated in two different ways. It, it's a phrase that, that Hebrews has actually used a number of times to describe the idea of entering God's tabernacle, entering God's presence, because we have such a great high priest, Jesus, who has paved the way for us to have a personal audience with God. Anyone who comes to God, anyone who draws near to God, anyone who comes into God's presence must believe two things. First, that God exists, and second, that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. We can't draw near to God. We can't enter God's presence if we don't believe God exists. I mean, why would we? That's fairly obvious. But second, also, we can't draw near to God if we don't believe God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you believe that God rewards those who earnestly seek him? If you do, you'll probably seek him. 
here's what I think the author of Hebrews is getting at. Being faithful to God is not always easy. It means swimming upstream. It means going against the flow of the world around us. Often it costs us something. Sometimes it costs us a lot. If we didn't believe that being faithful made any difference or that there was any benefit to it, why would we do it? Well, I can actually think of a few reasons we might be faithful. A few other reasons besides being rewarded. One is maybe we'd be faithful just because we were a really stubborn person. Maybe you were raised this way. You believe it's right and you refuse to change. Or maybe we would be faithful to God. You would be faithful to God just because you enjoy being different from everyone else. You like being unique and no one else is faithful to God. So you enjoy being unique. Or maybe you would be faithful to God because you enjoy looking down on everyone else. These are people I've met that I'm referring to here. Um, and you enjoy feeling good about yourself and you think you're better than everyone else and being faithful to God helps you feel that way. Or maybe you're faithful to God because you are just committed to being good and to be obedient. Your, your identity is you were always mommy and daddy's good little boy or good little girl and, and that's who you are. And so just out of pure duty, you do what's right. Well, guess what? None of those motivations please God. What pleases God is that we earnestly seek him because we expect there's reward in seeking God. There's anticipation of delight. There's a looking forward to something good. And it's not because we're mercenary. It's not because God's going to pay us off. It's not that we're faithful for that reason, but rather, what's the reward that we're anticipating? The reward is actually God. Seeing God face to face and living with God forever. And because we know God is a good God, just like when you go to your grandparents' house, if you had good grandparents who like to shower you with gifts, we know that God delights to give good things to his children. We know that with God come many blessings and delights as well. So I think that's what Hebrews is getting at there. So, so back to our verse, the reason we draw near, it's, it's not fear of the consequences if we didn't. It's not duty. It's delight and a desire for a rewarding relationship, one that endures. This is what Enoch had, and he was rewarded with a shortcut right into God's presence. Okay, then in our passage fourth, finally, we're introduced to one more hero. We're given one more example, the example of Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah, of course, is famous for building a great ark, a great boat to save himself and his family and the animals from the coming floodwaters. Noah couldn't see the flood coming, but God said it was coming, and Noah believed him. And so Noah built a huge boat on dry land. 
Imagine the faith that that took. Year after year, the commitment to God, the trust in what you couldn't see to keep building that boat. As his neighbors laughed at him, the crazy guy building a huge boat with his life savings on dry land. And Noah must have been very rich to build a boat that big, is my thought. But, but I mean, talk about a luxury yacht. I don't know if it was luxury, but it was a big boat. <laughs> uh, but Hebrews says, by doing this, Noah condemned the world. His action, done in faith, was a sharp contrast. It shows in stark relief everyone else's lack of faith. For them, God's word was foolishness. But that foolishness turned out to be God's wisdom and to be dead true. And Noah believed God's word and God's character. And so in faith, he built and he built and he built. And when the unseen floods finally came, Noah was ready and he saved himself and his family and all the animals two by two. And as a result, we're told Noah inherited righteousness because of his faith. Righteousness means being in right relationship with God. It means um, being in a good place in relation to God. Righteousness means things are good between you and God. We saw this word already with Abel up in verse 4. God commended Abel as righteous because of his faith. See, what God values in us, what it takes to be right with God is faith. It's not our works. It's not our religious efforts, not keeping a set of rules or commands better than everyone else is, but it's something deeper than that. It's a motivation. It's a relationship. God wants us to trust him, to trust him, to believe that God exists, that God is our creator and that God is good and it's rewarding to know God. And greater by far rewards lay in store, though they're presently unseen. Now, faith will cause us to obey God, like Noah did, of course. But faith is deeper than that. Faith will also cause us to honor God and to give God our best, like Abel did. And to walk with God and to seek God, like Enoch did. And faith will cause us to stand with God and even to be a fool for God like Noah was, like Noah did. Why? Because we have faith. We trust God. We know God is faithful and good. We know that when God speaks, we can bank on what God says, even if it doesn't happen right away and we can't see it ahead of time. It will be true. It will come to pass. It will be good in the end, even if we can't see it now. We will be rewarded one day with a face-to-face -face relationship with God and we'll enjoy all the good things God has promised, some of which we'll explore next Sunday as we continue in this chapter. But for now, we've met our first crew of the heroes of faith, the first few legends in the Hall of Faith, and their stories and their examples, they're meant to encourage us on our own faith journeys. Lest we give up when the going gets tough, like the first hearers of the letter of Hebrews were tempted to do. Don't give up, the author of Hebrews is saying. Hang in there. It's totally worth it. So as we close, 
what does faith look like for you right now? The, the story of faith looks different for each of us. It looked different for Abel than it did for Enoch and different for Enoch than it did for Noah. What does it look like for you? One of the most important questions we can ask as we face the various circumstances of life is, what does faith look like right now? I, I try to ask myself, and I've asked some of you that question from time to time. Maybe you're worried or you're discouraged about a problem or a challenge you're facing. What does faith look like? What does it look like to trust God with that problem or that challenge? Maybe you're facing a decision at work or at, about parenting or about school or a, about a purchase or an investment. What does faith look like? What would it look like to trust God enough to put his priorities first in this decision you have to make? And to trust God that God will give you what you need and will take care of you. Maybe you're facing a temptation to do something you shouldn't or to ignore something you know that you should do. What does faith look like? What would it look like to trust that God would be pleased and that God would reward you someday, somehow, for doing the right thing? Maybe you're angry at someone, or maybe you're hurt by them. What does faith look like? What would it look like to trust God with your feelings and to look to God for what you need emotionally and to honor God in how you treat this relationship? For you today, this week, this fall, what does faith look like? What would your day look like? What would your choices look like if you trusted that God exists, that God made you, and that God rewards those who earnestly seek him? That's how you get into the game. That's how you become a player on the field where the heroes of faith who went before you played. And that's who you are if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're someone who lives by faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for these people, real people who lived real lives to inspire us and encourage us. Lift our eyes above them, above the field, to you, so we can see afresh that you are worthy of our trust, and that you reward those who earnestly seek you. Amen.